following talk is from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Thanks for listening. I'm going to start off by introducing you uh, to a bit, of a, a bit of a trick that a lot, of, a lot of people do in how they present something or how they give an argument. In many ways, this gives you a bit of an insight into the mind of the preacher or the speaker in front of you. And that's this. The first five, ten seconds, the introductory statements, shall we call them, are actually really important. And how we get them correctly or we get them wrongly basically means that you're either, you've got people's attention or you're really fighting uphill battle from that moment on because Facebook, frankly, is more interesting. And we see this all across the way. I mean, I kind of notice it myself in how kind of I end up thinking about introductory statements. I mean, this morning, uh, John Brown did a phenomenal sermon. Really go and listen to it on the passage in Ephesians that we're going to be looking at. And he kind of talked about, uh, about blessing and when, how we say bless you. All very funny, all very engaging, all very witty. Tim, on the other hand, over in Eltham, did some stuff around hashtag blessed and how we can be blessed in that. Me, on the other hand, I looked at books, which reveals a lot about who I am as a person. But actually, it's true. How we think and how we draw people in, how we engage with stuff, how we present ourselves to people to start with, is actually really important. And so I wonder whether you're going to be able to remember where these come from. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. It's Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. If I say once upon a time, you're getting this feeling that we might be leaning towards a fairy tale. Something like Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Or personally, probably my favorite opening to a book ever, I am such a geek, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien. And we see that in both books, and we see it in plays, uh, and we see it in films as well. Think about the first ten minutes or so of Up as a film. How many of us have seen that and frankly wanted to cry at it or have cried at it? (laughs) Be honest, a few grown men here have shed tears over that. I haven't, just saying. Uh, That's probably because I'm a heartless person. Uh, Or say the fanfare um, towards something like Star Wars. The opening credits roll, you hear the trumpet blast, and you know what's coming. Again, showing that I'm a bit of a geek, I was in the BFI IMAX pretty much on the night the last one came out. And generally, when those trumpets went, there were cheers in the moment. I didn't cheer, but people were so excited because they were captivated by what was coming. Or perhaps my favourite one of all, the opening of The Lion King. You hear the, Nasavenya! And you know that this is going to be good, this is going to be in. On that, if you ever want a decent alarm tone to wake you up in the morning, that is unbelievable. I want to stay on someone's floor, and that went off, and you wake up with a mixture of, I am so ready for this, as well as, I might be about to be attacked by a pride of lions. <laughs> so just saying it out there, if you need to get up in the morning, Lion King, that's the one. But we see through kind of these silly, daft examples that introductions 
how we start things off are actually really, really important. And it's just the same inside of the Bible. I mean, the New Testament is filled with letters to people. Letters from one authoritative person speaking into a church's situation, into their life, and, and presenting to them some instructions, some help, some guidance along the way. And so what they say in their first sentences are often the most important ones, or at least set the tone of what's to come. And so as we're in the book of Ephesians over the next eight weeks or so, I'm kind of looking at these first few verses that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And in many ways, I just want to ask the question, why does he write what he does? What is it that causes him to start this as his introduction? We're theming this around the idea that we are blessed. And that's what we're going to be seeing as we go through. But let's have a look now at these verses. If you've got a Bible with you, open up to Ephesians, uh, pull it up on your phone. But equally, it's going to come up on the screen behind me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he freely lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. They're incredibly stirring words and ones that personally have have moved me to worship time and time over because you see these such incredible deep truths working their way through it. And Paul seems to be hitting on this idea of what does it mean to be blessed? What is this blessing that he talks about? What is the spiritual blessing that he says God has so freely lavished upon us? And Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, not just as kind of like some random person, like a friend to a friend, but he's writing with a level of authority in it. He opens, Paul, an apostle. An apostle was someone who traveled around, who would speak directly into churches and saying, look, this is good, this is bad, this is how you can improve, learn this about Jesus, and all will be hunky-dory. But he equally had spent time in the church. He knew them. He knew them because he'd spent three years there and had done, frankly, mad things around when he was there. Like, there are stories inside of Acts, and James was telling us some of them last week, about how, like, aprons and handkerchiefs that he touched were then went on, sent on to heal people. This is a huge, important person speaking into the church in Ephesus' life. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's worth thinking, why is it that he says what he does? 
What is it that causes him to focus when there are so many other things he could talk about? He could open with some of the things like church unity that comes on in, uh, in chapter 3, chapter 4. He could talk about the gender roles that appear inside of chapter 5 or things like how husbands relate to their wives, how sons relate to their fathers and mothers and how slaves relate to their masters. He could even go for the juiciest of all of the things inside of Ephesians, spiritual warfare. He could say, look, this is happening to you. Let me tell you how to deal with it. But no, he says these words. And that for me suggests that there is a truth lurking deep, deep down that he's saying, if you get this, the rest that follows becomes a heck of a lot easier. And so what I want to do over kind of the next 20 minutes or so, just as I speak, is think, why is it that he says what he does? What is this truth that he wants to get? To us. He opens by saying that he's an apostle, verse 1, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. By opening like that, he is openly and easily saying, look, this isn't anything to do with me. He says, I am only apostle because Jesus called me. He is fully aware that by using the name Paul, he's admitting that he was earlier Saul. He's saying that I did murder, I did persecute. I was, I was someone who was so far away from who God was that I have no right now to be saying this except for the will of God. Except because he first loved me, because he first called me, and because he first chose me. He writes to the saints inside of Ephesus, the holy ones who are there. It's the same word used later when he says that God has chosen us to be holy. He says, well, you are holy in that place. It's a huge encouragement to us as we live our lives that actually the status over us is not that we are sinners, is not that we're worthless or, or that we're disqualified, but no, that Paul, if he was writing to the new community, six o'clock church right now, he would say, well, to the holy, to the saints who find themselves in Sidcup. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love those two verses, and this is kind of, in some ways, what I want to major on inside of this. Because what they show is that they debunk every other claim towards God that, we, that humanity has ever come up with. You see, all other claims to God have this idea of the gods or gods being kind of a slave driver to a workforce. That if I can somehow manage to get my way towards them, then maybe, just maybe, they'll bless me in turn. The culture that Paul was writing into in Ephesus, one where the Romans were in charge, was kind of this melting pot of religion. But the common denominator was this. If I offer my sacrifices, if I offer my Jews, then my business might go well, then my farming might go well, my tests might go well. Think about what it is you want to go well, and if I offer my sacrifices, then it will go well. However, if I don't, if I mess up, if I displease the gods, and sometimes that can just be because they're a bit weird, then you know what bad things are going to happen to me. We have a similar thing around us. When you think of something like Buddhism, karma, the system inside of it, it's if I do good, then eventually I might reach nirvana, I might reach enlightenment. Whereas if I do bad, bad things come around and hit, and hit me. I might be reincarnated as a worm or lower. Good things, bad things. It's all about working our way, responding our way of, of driving ourselves towards something or someone. 
We see it in how people kill themselves to get the most money that they can. If I can but have this little bit more, then maybe, just maybe, I'll find my satisfaction. I'll find my contentment. And Paul says, no, grace to you from God our Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In those two words, God, Father, he fully and utterly debunks what it means to relate towards the God that we've just worshipped. Because no longer is he by saying, Father, is he saying that we work our way, that we have to please or we have to do something. No, instead, it is working towards one who just loves us because that is who he is. If someone is Father and perfect and loving inside of it, then of course they're going to want to meet with you. Of course they're going to desire a relationship with you. Of course they're going to be happy and they're going to be proud of you and want good things over your life. God is Father. Paul makes sure he says that to the church in Ephesus twice because he wants them to get it early on. That there's no working our way, trying to please in order to get good things back. No. Instead, we relate to him as a father does to a child. I, I uh, went home this last week uh, back to Guernsey and kind of hung out with my parents and, and uh, some of my wider family. And the big thing I noticed was like just how happy my parents were that I was there rather than kind of a couple of hundred miles away in a stretch of ocean distant. They were so happy I was there that they were like, why, why are you getting your wallet out to pay for this? Of course I'm going to pay for it. It was great in so many ways. I mean, like, we are a middle-class family, so that meant tea and cake most days. Happy days. But why did I say that? Um, and why did my voice go high-pitched? Uh, but inside of it, I saw in those moments that I could sit down and I could talk to my parents about anything I wanted. And they weren't going to say, no, go away. We don't have time for you. They're like, no, I want to spend time with you because I love you. And so for Paul to say that anyone here who calls Jesus their Lord, who has entered into relationship with God, the same is true for you. Blessed be God, our Father. Remember that. It is so important for how we relate to him in prayer meetings coming up in our daily lives because it means he wants to know you. It means he is actually happy with you and that he loves you. But more than that, Paul goes on to say, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That because God loves us, because he is this father, so he in turn blesses us. We can say blessed be because he has blessed us. What are these spiritual blessings? Because, I mean, there's no mention of anything material right here, is there? There's no mention of the BMWs or the house or the whatever or even the relationships. No, it's spiritual blessings. I think this is where the rubber hits the road as to why Paul writes what he does as an introduction. It's because he's wanting to say, if you grasp hold of just how wonderful a relationship with Jesus is, if you grasp hold of just how worthy it is to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you realize that material things fade into the distance. There's an old hymn that I absolutely love, uh, which has got the strap line, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I really think Paul is saying, by saying that he has blessed us with every conceivable 
spiritual blessing that he's saying because of these things that he unpacks a little bit later, because of those things, everything else you kind of think doesn't matter so much. Everything else is kind of fades into its insignificance and you're just kind of like, well, it's important, but does it matter? What are these spiritual blessings that can make kind of, I suppose, not necessarily having all the money you could want in the world, not necessarily having every, the latest iPhone all the times look inconceivable in, in comparison? Well, he says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption. We have been brought back through his blood, Jesus' blood, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, according to all the riches of his grace, which he has freely and abundantly lavished upon us. This is mad. Genuinely so exciting what is just said here because it absolutely ought to blow our minds to worship every single time we hear these words. Even just the first kind of phrase inside of that, which to be honest is the one which has been rocking my world most and so I'm going to major on it. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That means that if you believe in Jesus Christ, he has said before anything even was, before the Big Bang or seven days, whatever it was, before any of that, He has said, I love you, I value you, and I want to know you. The word for choose there is a selection word. It is a picking word. It is the idea of being lined up against the wall as you are at school and a captain standing there and going, I want you, I want you, I want you. Selecting, picking, and God says, I have chosen you. I have picked you as my first draft before anything even happened. This is mad and it boggles my mind because it shows just how vast the scandal of grace is. It shows just how much he loves us that he would say, before you've even been able to do anything, I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I desire a relationship with you. I want you to know that you are holy and blameless. That there is nothing in heaven or earth that could ever separate you or me from the Father's love. Everything has been spoken about before we could even do anything. That is what grace is. I saw a tweet last week which said this. Grace tells us that we're a winner before we even start. I, I love that. I mean, I, I, was, I wasn't always kind of the, well, the person you stand, see before you. I was a fat, chubby kid. Like, genuinely, like Joe and James love to remind me that when they first met me, I was a geeky, fat kid. Joe's words. Um, I've cried a bit. It's okay. But the reality was that for me, I, like, I hated things like cross-country at school, or I hated kind of athletics, or all those sorts of things. Yeah, I had a slightly gammy knee, but that also meant that I'd blame it and get me out of it. But if I was to be told that I was a winner before I even started, I would have bitten a hand off in that moment. And this is entirely what God says over you. He says that there is nothing, nothing that will ever possibly separate you from his love. And he has proved it 
by what Paul says here. That even before the foundations, the creations of the heavens or the earth, God said, I want you. I know you. You are honored. You are precious in my eyes. And so that means in how we live our lives going forward, we can be confident in knowing that nothing is going to change that. Nothing is going to change how God views us because he has said over us, well, you are because of who my son is. That he says several times, in Christ, in him, through his blood. Because of what Jesus does on the cross, it means that everything has been handed over to you. And that when God looks at you, he no longer sees the muck that we might feel we have. What Leila was saying about disqualification. He no longer sees any form of disqualification, but he sees the perfection of Christ over you. Paul says it there, that he chose us to be, well, for adoption as sons. It's a legal term saying that every legal right that is Christ has been handed over to us. And so that means we can live our lives in full assurance and in full confidence of knowing this. And I think all of this is what Paul's trying to get through to the Ephesians' head. He's trying to say, if you get hold of the gospel, if you get hold of just how blessed you are, the rest, of, the rest of the stuff I'm going to speak to you about, the gender stuff, the spiritual warfare stuff, all that stuff, you'll kind of see how it flows out of it. You'll kind of see that if we can get this bit in place, everything else kind of follows. It means that if we can grasp hold of the knowledge that there's nothing I can do to change how he views me, it means that when we start to think about whether our kind of our lives, we're like, well, why would I not do what, sorry, why would I do that bad stuff? Because he's already forgiven me for it. He's already said, I love you. He already says, I honored, I honored you. Thinking about something like anxiety, about worry, something that, well, I was reading an article earlier today about how there was a survey of over 65s and the biggest thing that they said they regretted in their lives most was the fact that they worried too much. They spent so much time worrying. Paul's saying that if we can start to grasp in our lives a little bit more that God is Father, that he cares for us, that he loves us, that he's adopted us, and that in the context of eternity, actually what is a momentary thing in light of a whole, whole of the future, knowing that we're going to be with him. What are money worries? And we can look at the God who has heavenly storehouses laden with precious stones and jewels and more wealth than the world could ever know, knowing that he is fully on our side. But yet equally knowing that although God says, although Christ says, blessed are the poor, <laughs> that we can look in confidence in those things because we know that actually long term, again, I'll be okay. It's why you can read these stories of Syrian refugees who have seen their family members beheaded for their faiths. And they can basically kind of say, you know what, I'll see them again. I can see them again. We live in a very blessed time. We live in a very blessed place. If you think, of, like statistics say that if you have a house... If you have a roof over your head and food in your stomach every day, you are among the wealthiest in the world. If you can add a car into that mix, then you are in the uber wealthy, in the cons of the world. We are incredibly blessed materially already. 
And actually, sometimes we need to be reminded of what Paul says here is that it's not all about those things. That actually the spiritual ones are the true ones. I've, I've been moved in the past by friends who have gone out to places like Tanzania and worked with charity, charities out there. And they would see people who had nothing, but yet they had a smile on their face and a joy in their heart. Why? Because they knew the spiritual blessings that came through knowing Christ. Because they could say, you know what? God is my father. I'm happy. I can be content with my lot in life. And this, I think, is what Paul really wants to get across the church in Ephesus and to us. That if we fix our gaze solely and squarely upon Jesus and who he is, everything else kind of follows on after that. But yet with it, there's a challenge. You see, Paul does introduce the church in Ephesus to this gospel. It's how he opens to them. He says, get hold of this. Get hold of the gospel. Get hold of the good news of just how blessed you are. But he ends like this. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. He's saying at the end of the day that there is a response to the call of God over our lives. And that is that we return. That is that we keep him as the focus of our attention, that we don't get distracted by worldly things, that we are prepared to say, you know what, for the sake of who he is, I will say no to that. For the sake of him, then I'm going to live all out for him. The Bible can be a scary place. It really can. And there are some verses that kick around in it which genuinely are a bit terrifying. One of the ones that kind of most scares me is, uh, is when, uh, when Jesus turns around and says this. Jesus, God, says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Basically, weren't we great charismatics there, Lord? And then... I, Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you works of lawlessness. What is the will of God? Well, Jesus summarizes it a few verses later inside of Matthew's gospel when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Keep your gaze upon who he is. Do not allow other things to distract you. Do not allow even good works to distract you from who he is. Don't allow your lives to be so busy filling them up with, with good things in order that we forget to spend time with the one who started all of them. The church in Ephesus is, um, is a unique one in the Bible in that we see both the start of it, as James introduced us last week, we see the middle of it, as Paul is writing to them, and we'll be hearing over the coming weeks, but we all see the end of it. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, uh, John the Elder speaks to the church in Ephesus, prophetically speaking Jesus' word over to them. And he says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Basically saying, your doctrine, bang on. Like, you know your Bibles. You can spot things that are contrary to Scripture. Good job, you. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Basically, you know what? You've faced some difficulty, and you've managed to keep going. Good job again. But... 
I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Basically, Jesus says to them in that moment, you've dropped your gaze. You've dropped your gaze away from who I am. You've forgotten all these wonderful spiritual blessings. And if you aren't prepared to realize that, to turn around and repent, to turn away from that, put your gaze back upon me, then ultimately this church will die. It's what the lampstand bit means. And we stand on the right side of history to be able to know what the answer to that one is. There is no thriving great church in Ephesus anymore. Yes, many wonderful churches were planted out of it, and in many ways this church and others like it are produce of the works of Paul in places like Ephesus and otherwise, but the reality is there's not a thriving gospel center in Ephesus anymore. As hard as this might be to hear, there's a stark warning in many ways inside of, inside of these verses. A stark warning that does just say, you know what? Keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Live your lives with the, with the audience of one. Live total and pure lives towards him, knowing that he wants good things for you, knowing that he has equipped you for every good work you could possibly ever come across, knowing that there is nothing more or nothing less that could change his affections towards you. If we can keep hold of that, then I genuinely believe that we will see our communities transformed. If we can keep our eyes fixed squarely on him, saying, you are our God, we love you and we know you, we believe that you have died for us, that you raise from the dead again and that you in turn have lavished upon us your grace. If we can keep our eyes upon him, be telling ourselves that day by day, then oh my word, I genuinely believe our schools will be transformed in a few weeks. I genuinely believe that our campuses can be transformed away from darkness towards light. That workplaces, the business world will, st- will step up and take notice of the church that is fully on fire, the church that realizes just how wonderful this gospel is. And that equally as people, we'd be prepared to not have our gaze distracted by other things. Chris, could you maybe jump up? We're going to have the opportunity to respond in just a moment. And um, the reason for this is because this is important. It's important that we are prepared to admit that sometimes we don't get it right, but that actually Jesus is worth following inside of this. That Jesus does say, you know what, turn away and we can crack on. He says, I love you. I chose you. I picked you. You're my first point. You're my first pick. And equally he says, just keep your gaze upon me. Keep your eyes upon me. And then maybe, just maybe, we'll start to see some of the stuff that we dream about really starting to happen. That we'll realize that stresses, anxieties, that that tests, that money, that all the things that would distract us from him might be able to say, you know what, actually in the light of that, I'm okay. I'll survive. This has been probably one of the most challenging sermons I've ever prepared for personally because Jesus just said, 
you've not got this one always. I personally am aware of what, of, of kind of, the, that I have dropped my gaze from who he is. That at times I've allowed kind of anxieties of even just simple things like essays and exams that are coming up. And I'm like, what? genuinely, Jesus has blessed me so much. Why am I worrying about a stupid Greek exam in a couple of weeks? Equally, I'm aware of myself that I'm aware of myself that there is a side of me, yes, that would look at the wonderful beauty inside of um, inside of kind of relationships and all of that, and go, well, at the moment, I'm not content in who I am. But yet, actually, because of over the last six, seven months and the last eighteen months that's moving here, I've been able to get hold of the gospel more and more. I've realized that actually I'm prepared to say, you know what, yeah, I'm away from my family, and that hurts a bit. I'm away from a place that I know and love. I miss my home. I miss the sun and I miss the sea. I miss a whole bunch of good friends who I made at university and are spread across the country. I miss these things. But actually, because of the worth of knowing Jesus, because he is so glorious, because he is so good and he has lavished his affection upon me, I'm prepared to say, you know what, I am never happier than I have been now. That's a genuine thing. I've never felt more blessed and more amazed at who he is than I am now. It makes me want to do things like, even though Game of Thrones was one of my favorite TV shows, be able to say, actually, you know what? Because that probably will cause me to sin, I'm going to say no. Because why? Actually, you know what? In the context of eternity, well, I can always read the books. But the truth is this. Where is our gaze? Is it on the one who has blessed us? Or is it on... Thanks for listening to this talk from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk.